Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Ricky Vellante and David West are co-founders of the Professional Collegiate League, an upstart professional basketball league that aims to enable athletes to benefit directly from their labor by offering both an education and compensation. A return guest, Listeners will be familiar with Ricky, who serves as the league's CEO, and he's also an attorney at the Valanti Law Firm, an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School and Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He also co-hosts the podcast or the, Th- the Forward Thinking podcast with our other guest, former NBA All Star and four-year star forward at Xavier University, and PCL Chief Operating Officer David West. Ricky and David, it is our pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Oh, good. Thanks yeah, for having great. us, man. Thanks. First off, as Ricky will know, we, we sort of begin our podcast with asking all of our guests sort of what how they've been dealing with everything that 2020 has sort of thrown at them, um, where they are. So let's start with you, Ricky. How are things going uh, in 2020 in Cleveland? Things are good. Uh, as we were just talking about, I recently moved. Uh, so that's been on the personal side, a, a little bit of a shift moving from downtown Cleveland, living there for the last eight plus years out to the burbs. So that, that's been a little bit of a change. And and Mother Nature, we moved down the snow belt, threw a curveball at us right off the bat. So uh, it's it's been it's been good. But no, professionally, it's been fun. It's been an interesting year. That's for sure. It's been a different year. But uh, yeah. But nevertheless, it's been it's been a good one. Good. And, and David, how about you? How is how's twenty twenty treating you in North Carolina? Well, I mean, I'm <clears throat> I'm in a position. I mean, like everyone else, um, you know, just adjusting. I've lost my voice a little bit, yelling at some eleven year olds all weekend. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we have just been dealing. Um, you know, I've got a family with three young kids, so um, you know, we're just being extra cautious, extra safe. We've done literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very little travel, like most people, um, you know, become real familiar with Zoom and these different platforms um, to conduct business. Um, but, you know, personally, I, I can't complain. My family's healthy. You know, I'm healthy. And uh, we're just ready for a uh, uh, a bit of positive news, I guess. Yeah, I think we're all hoping for for 2021 to sort of be a, a turnaround year <laughs> right. and not like 2020. <laughs> Now, listen, there is so, so much that we have to get to. And since we last talked, Ricky, there have been some really, really interesting developments in the Professional Collegiate League. Um, And since we have sort of heard your voice before, perhaps, David, you could start us off with filling us in on everything that's happening in the PCL right now and over the past few months. Yeah. So we, um, uh, as you said, our, our, our goal... Um, you know, is to create a, an op- opportunity for athletes to be compensated uh, while they're in college and they're experiencing a, uh, 
you know, very high moment in terms of athletic uh, performance, and they need to be uh, compensated for it. Um, so that's that's our starting point. Um, you know, we continue to build. We're working toward uh, releasing our brands. Um, you know, obviously we've made a change and a shift in some of the things that we're going to be doing as we look forward to our our first season, um, adjusting to the COVID uh, pandemic and creating a bubble situation for our young players. Um, you know, we continue to be in con, excuse me, conversation with um, lots of young athletes. We continue to fill out, um, you know, partners and people that are going to work with us, you know, to create this equitable solution uh, for college athletes and, and college basketball. Uh, you know, we've already released one brand. We've got another brand release coming soon. Uh, we continue to spread the word uh, as we're getting uh, and continue to gain momentum, you know, amongst, you know, the people in the basketball community as they become more familiar with what we're doing. Um, and the response has been great uh, where we are. David, you mentioned that you released one team. Could maybe, Ricky, you, you kind of walk us through the, the sort of launch of DC Stealth and, and share that stuff with our listeners? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience. Uh, we were fortunate enough, again, going back to uh, some of the positives of what's happened throughout the, the this year. We were able to get access to a creative designer uh, who has a lot of experience in the NBA, whose schedule opened up as a result of everything that was going on. And he came in and has been working on our team brands. Uh, you know, we, we rolled out the DC Stealth first this coming week, actually, or I'm not sure when this episode is going to drop, but we're, we're going to be releasing our next brand here um, either Tuesday or Wednesday. So, and that's going to be the team representing the city of Charlotte. So, and, and actually it's a, it's a good one because one of the very first times that David and I really sat down together in person, he said, whatever you do, you have to name your, your, one of your Carolina teams, this name. <laughs> and, uh, and that ended up being it. That, that was the one we went with. So, um, you know, we're, we're excited to roll that one out, but I mean, basically the process from the beginning, we wanted to not have too much overlap with other sports properties that are out mm -hmm. there. So no team that that's a basketball team that plays the sport of basketball. We didn't want to replicate any of their names, no major mm -hmm. collegiate program and no professional sports team that plays during the same season as us. So you can quickly start checking off the boxes there <laughs> that eliminates the NBA, the WNBA, the NWSL, the MLS, the major league baseball, yeah. most collegiate programs. So like right off the bat, like 400, 500 names are gone. And yeah. the reason that those names are being used is because they're good. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, we went into at a rather granular, granular level trying to find brands that we thought that over time we could build a really positive, strong brand in the context of sports within our league and really show off what we're trying to accomplish not only from a branding standpoint, but from, from a mission standpoint. And so with DC, that led us to the name Stealth. Uh, and that led us to doing a entirely monochromatic black uh, jersey design and, and logo design, which was a lot of fun. So, and, and having, look a, nice. yeah, having a hidden, having the hidden image DC built into it was really cool. Um, yeah. It was, it's, it was a very fun and rewarding process to, to work with the designer. And I should also mention our chief marketing officer, Wendell Haskins, who had a very strong role in the development of that brand. It, it was, it was a lot of fun. One of the, the more fun things I've gotten to do 
uh, while working within the context of the PCL. And, and so just a quick follow-up, um, sort of what was the reasoning behind DC first and then the sort of upcoming Charlotte one as being the, the number one, number two that you all dropped? Yeah, so the four that we've finished to date are Baltimore, Richmond, DC, and Charlotte. And we felt that because of the close proximity of all of our teams in the Tidewater, Virginia, DMV, North Carolina region, that we wanted to have some of those teams released first. DC is one of the largest cities that we're involved in uh, or that we will be involved in. And we were also just really excited about the brand itself. Um, Mm -hmm. Though, frankly, I think the best is yet to come, not to in any way uh, denigrate the the great work of, of the stealth brand, but there's some really exciting ones coming. Uh, I'm, I'm super stoked to roll out the Richmond one as a Richmond guy. Um, and, and Joanna, I know you've also got ties to Richmond, so, um, absolutely. you know, yeah, so I'm, I'm pumped to get that one out in the next couple months, but, um, yeah, I mean, really, we, we've also locked in our coaching staff for the DC team, which that announcement's coming soon. So that was another reason behind, uh, going with DC first was because we can, we can roll out other elements with that team. Excellent. That, that's super cool. And just really, really exciting. Um, and, and so since we have a lot of the background of the PCL already, um, it'd be great if we can ask you both a bit about what you make about recent events in the college basketball world. Now, we are a few weeks into the season, and as shockingly predictable as it is, we are unfortunately seeing massive outbreaks and rising cases around the NCAA. And so as a former NCAA and NBA player and current COO of an NCAA alternative, sorry, that's a lot of acronyms at once. (laughs) Um, David, uh, what do you make of the return to play in college basketball? You know, well, I think, you know, we've, we talked about this internally, um, but obviously, you know, the players uh, are the guys that are, you know, ultimately being sacrificed here Um, when the decisions were being made and the, rules and regulations were being said about how they would return. Um, You know, we just have to take the NCAA and the institution's word for it, that they took the player's best interest at heart. Um, So this is is where we are. Um, I do um, think that there have been, you know, the NBA proved or showed a way of successfully um, creating or or, or having sporting events. Um, But you have to keep the players – you know, safe. And the NBA probably did yeah. the best job in terms of the, the, the return. Uh, the NBA did the best job in terms of protecting the players. And right now um, you've got some college coaches that are, you know, on the fence. Some want to play, some don't want to play for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately the players are the ones that are in the midst of it. Um, the hard thing about it is, and I'm somebody that's connected to, to quite a few players, um, they want to play. Um, and so, you know, I honestly know that, you know, that there are a bunch of guys that are like, man, you know, they want to be out there. And I think the, the universities, institutions know that. Um, uh, but again, whatever precautions they're taking, I think some folks are doing a better job, um, than others. Um, but because again, there's really no set code of conduct in something like this, 
Um, you know, everyone's trying to figure out, you know, the best way to handle it. But, you know, my position, and I think the position, um, you know, that everybody, you know, should take is that the players and their needs and their safety should come players who were, you know, really concerned about their health and were refusing to play. Um, we would have to support them um, in that. Uh, so that's where, I mean, that's where I stand in terms of um, the return to play. I think we all, um, you know, I'm somebody that enjoys sports um, and it's something that, you know, is a part of what we do. Um, but again, the players and their safety, um, you know, has to be the priority. And in the situations where the people are getting it right, uh, we've seen very few incidences, but um, in some situations where they're being careless and not, um, uh, you know, taking taking the, the proper steps and the proper precautions, um, you see an uptick in these cases and, 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 and people's health affected. Absolutely. And so what do you think about uh, what's going on, Ricky? Yeah, I think it's really, I, you know, pretty much agree with everything David said. You know, I'm not one of those that say sports should not be played during the pandemic period. Like, I don't view this as an absolute in that context. But that said, the athletes have to have a voice in the process where the NBA, the NWSL, the WNBA, the MLS, I know they did their their MLS Super Cup during the summer as well. Like the athletes mm -hmm. got a seat at the table to say, okay, here's what we're going to do together to make sure that everybody's safe. And that process never happened in college sports, whether it's football or basketball, whichever one we're talking about. You know, the athletes were simply told, we have your best interests at heart, trust us. And, you know, the, the NCA and the schools don't exactly have the best track record when they say things like that. So, you know, I mean, the when you see some of the 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 uh, contraction rates that some of the teams have, I, I want to say it was like LSU was up in like the 70, 80s percents. Mm -hmm. Like that is just an absolute institutional failure, period. Right. Exactly. And and so the fact and th and this is where the you know the the PCL where we come at it you know I just view it from a from a labor perspective purely I don't view it from the stance of like society needs sports in a pandemic I don't really care about that part but what I do care about is that the athletes have a voice in the process they're laborers just like anybody else and they need to be protected to echo what David said their safety has to come first because this doesn't work if you don't care about their safety so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's my perspective is sports in and of themselves shouldn't be shut down just because we're in a pandemic. But there have to be like common sense precautions and the athletes have to have a seat at the table in determining the, the conditions in which they're willing to come back to work. Yeah, like like we saw, I think, in the NBA and the NHL and the MLS, like I think what we saw in terms of protection in return to play was solely due to the fact that they're able to mobilize their labor in, in terms of a union. Like they're able to have a, a seat at the table well, because like they have a union to fight for that and to protect um, that. And, and like all three of us, Johanna, Nathan and I, we've written about um, and we wrote about how the, the moment that college football players started to mobilize and started to like, like talk about a union um, and labor mobilization in, in terms of in 2020 and, and um, in the return to play protocols, like we saw the big 10 and the pac 12 just shut it down. 
right? They just shut it down. They said, we're not playing. And then the moment that, you know, the labor mobilization threat wasn't as pervasive, wasn't as sort of percolating, they said, hey, oh, we're coming back. We're, we're going to play. So I, 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 a little bit of a follow-up maybe is like, do you think that there needs to be a movement towards labor mobilization in college athletics? And in this moment, do you think it would be successful? And I think we should perhaps start with David on on this one. Well, I I don't know. I would um, I would I would depend on Ricky's um Ricky's position here. But I would say that um I think they tried organizing a union in North, at Northwestern, um mm-hmm. and I think that there was a significant pushback, and then ultimately, um the movement was uh, it wasn't successful, um and I believe that. In in this time, um, I'm not sure that the players. So one of the things that we experienced mm. through the uh, uh, through the first part of the pandemic, in terms of these guys getting back to work, is during that upswell of players and their voices. Um, there was really no real commitment, right? Because you're asking 18, 19, 20, 21 year old kids to basically forego and sacrifice their career in a lot of their eyes for the next generation. And so there needs to be, like Ricky said, mentioned before, there needs to be a representative uh, for them. There's, uh, and I'm not sure if it's labor, what we're doing um, would represent the athlete's position and take into account mm-hmm. the athlete's health, um, both, you know, physically and economically in terms of, um, you know, their future. So I think that that, we have to be careful. Um, in other words, in my opinion, um, in, in, in the way that we look at it in terms of can they organize, can we depend, would we just um, depend on these, like I said, 18, 19, 20-year-olds um, to take a shot at organizing this union it, in spite of the conditions that, that we're facing? Um, I think that's just a, a tough task. And we think, and I think that, um, if I'm not mistaken again, that they gave a run at that at Northwestern. Yeah, David, can, can I jump in on this? What I want to, what I'm really curious to hear from you about, um, especially in your position as a former NBA player, I agree with you completely that this is an extremely large and challenging ask for college students, right? To, right. to, to make this, particularly since they're there for such a short period of time, they've given so much to get to this point, right? And they're so close to their dream, which for almost all of the people we're talking about is to make it to that next level, right? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about, uh, the basketball players, it's the NBA, but I think we're having a very, it's a very similar conversation for football, right? We can almost say we're having like one larger conversation here. Football players want to make it to the NFL. And especially when it comes to football players, they've sacrificed their bodies to such an extent already at this point, right? Like, why wouldn't they just push themselves over the edge? So I get that completely. And it makes me wonder, is there a role for the professional athletes who actually have the security now, right? They've, they've got to that place they were trying to get to. NBA players like you were, NFL players who are secure, who are unionized. It seems like to me that there is a huge role for those individuals to show solidarity to the college, the college athletes who are going through what they once went through. Right. Isn't there a role for that? Yes, there absolutely is. Uh, but you have to have the people willing to recognize it and step into uh, a position um, to affect, you know, to change. 
Um, and you know, that's what we've tried to do, you know, with our, with our league, we've reached out and we've, we've brought some professional athletes on board, um, you know, to help push what we're doing and to push our position in terms of how we think college basketball in this case should be represented. So there definitely is a role, um, again, you know, just to be, just to be honest, um, there has to be a care factor there as well. Like you're asking Mm -hmm. professional athletes, you know, to give a damn, Mm -hmm. um, and that's, Again, you have human nature and you have some folks that just don't care. Yeah. Just to be honest. Yeah. If if I could add a few things there too, yeah. and and David, fact check me if I'm wrong here, but I want to use David as the example for a moment. So, you know, David was drafted in 2003. And then in the 2012 lockout, you David was part of I don't know that he was officially part of the leadership executive committee of the athletes of the NBA players that were negotiating with it with the owners, but he was definitely there. And then I know that he had a, a looser role in the 2016 ones, though that was less of a adversarial right. situation than 2012 was, but it took nine years for, and David, obviously, again, he's a very special player and has a very special reputation in the sense of his awareness of bigger issues than just what's happening on the court. But it took nine years for him to ascend to a place where he could have an impact on that labor relationship. Yeah. College college basketball players are maybe there for eight months. College football players are maybe there for three years. Like the natural turnover of college athletes will always make a organized labor movement within college right. sports difficult, very difficult. Right, right, right. And not to mention, think about the rank and file people like so. So those people that are the one and done players, the ones that are frankly pulling the money in on the basketball side and on the on the football side, you know, the Trevor Lawrence's of the world, they are outnumbered 10 to one by rank and file, no name or lower name athletes. And again, within a organized labor relationship they will have drastically different interests than what the upper echelon named athletes would have. And they will conflict at many points. You know, the the, the Trevor, I don't want to put it on Trevor Lawrence, but like superstar quarterback or superstar basketball player, like they're going to want to be able to maximize how much revenue that they can get in that short period of time that they're on campus. While a guy that's there and knows he's going to be there and he's going to redshirt and he's going to be there for five years, like he wants the more long-term protections based around healthcare, based around academic scholarships, all of those things. And when you try to get into this really complicated context of a, of a collective bargaining negotiation, you, you can't just pull one thread out and say, we're going to focus on this one thing because there's hundreds of issues being discussed. And so again, I think that that uniqueness that exists within college sports and the fact that the rank and file players will have far more power than the superstar players, it, it just, it's a, it's a mismatch for what we generally see in sports, at least in a, in an organized labor situation. So, you know, and not to mention, you know, we've had Bucky, we talked to Bucky McGill on our podcast, you know, he talked about it right. And this was right around the time that, uh, I think it was the Pac-12 had just released their statement. Like he was <laughs> in, in no uncertain terms said that if a player puts their name to this, they have to be ready for their career to be over. 
and not mm-hmm. many people are willing to do that. You know, the Syracuse Eight, even though there were nine of them, mm-hmm. the Syracuse Eight did that. How many people since them have we actually seen put their name to something and sacrifice their entire remainder of their career? Like even Kaepernick, like was already there. Like these guys did it in college before they ever got the paycheck. (laughs) So again, it's, it would take a incredible coincidence of the right people meshing together at the perfect moment to have a true labor movement within college sports. And I don't see political help coming either. That That's the other part, the other side of the coin here. You know, we're the in discussion, right? We're in discussions with a lot of the different Senator staffs and, and uh, representative staffs that are working on this issue. And I do not see a solution coming from that side of things. In fact, I think that's only going to make the situation way messier and probably not bring a clear cut answer anytime soon. So that's what brings, you know, that's why I came to the PCL. It's a whole hell of a lot easier to create a system that recognizes the athletes as employees from day one and allows them to unionize from day one, as opposed to trying to fix what, you know, fix 114 years of mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I want to take a maybe a little tangent, circling back on something that David said about um, the sort of political dispositions of, um, let's say, let's look at NBA players for a minute, right? Because what you were saying, David, is that there's a there's a fundamental challenge. Like we can say hypothetically, in an ideal world, it would be great for professionals to show solidarity to college players, but you actually have to have professionals who are willing to do that, right? And who aren't right. only carried about, carried about their own interests. Well, we have a fascinating, not a, not, it's not an exact, precise example of what we're talking about here, but we have a very sort of relevant case this summer in terms of the, the, the strikes that NBA players took, right? The NBA player strikes. Right. I am really curious in general about your take on how that played out. Um, if you think that the players sort of acted as you might have, if you were in that situation, um, how you felt about the demands that were being made that what, you know, all of that, because to me, it feels like uh, it was a really inspiring moment and also it became kind of a sticky one to unpack. Right. Yeah. Well, my, I mean, to answer the first part of your question, um, I don't know what I would have done because I'm not, wasn't in that situation. So I wouldn't even, you know, care to go that way. I would say more so that um, if you're inspired, if you're feeling, um, if you're, if your humanness, right, can't be sort of pushed to the side for, you know, your required daily duty, uh, which for guys is training and working hard and playing games and practice and things. If you can't push, you know, that human feeling um, aside, it's very hard to do your job. And what is happening, and I've been talking about this for some time, is what's happening with athletes is they have their phones. And Mm -hmm. the majority of the time, when we're on the plane, we're on the bus, when we're on in the locker room, we're in our phones. Um, It's a way to pass time. But now, because there's so much going on on social media, Guys are literally engaged in some, and a, and, and a lot, it's a lot more guys than you think, understand sort of the political machinations that are going on. Now, whether or not they have the courage to speak on it is a whole different other subject. 
but you do have a greater awareness amongst players. So you have this this collective con- uh, or this this connectedness that these guys have now to the communities that they're a part of, to the cities that they're living in, to the cities that their families are in. Um, they're seeing what's going on because, you know, it, in the case of police brutality, these things are being projected to their phones. They're sitting on the bus, you know, riding to the airport, checking out what's going on. It's like, man, something else. Their conversations are being had. And you can't, after a while, you can no longer push your human, uh, your humanness aside uh, to just sort of blot it out and act like it doesn't exist, especially when you're living in the cities where these things are happening. And so that's why you saw Milwaukee and the players from Milwaukee um, you know, make a demand because it, it, it was it was too close to home. They're on the road. Their families are in Milwaukee. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. When when they're on the plane in another city, their families, their brothers, their sisters, their wives, their children are in these cities. And so it's hard and it's become harder um, to push that human your human connectedness aside because you're connecting through these through this phone and when i came in the nba in 2003 i mean we had cell phones but no nobody was really using cell phones there was no apps yeah. there was none of that stuff and yeah. then eventually you see it and you know when i came in the league guys were still reading newspapers and then eventually that stuff sort of gradually went away everybody's in their phone there's no um, there's no need, you know, when I was in Golden State, for instance, like at halftime, guys are in their phone and, Co- you know, Coach Kerr would be like, man, what, what's what's going on? Like it was a different era, but it's something that, you know, it's, it's connected guys. And now you have players that are willing, you know, to use their voice. You have guys like LeBron James, who has a platform that, again, he's he's done you know, he's done well for himself, if we could say that. And, you know, he's he's not, again, LeBron knows how to speak in a way that gets his point across, but he puts his name behind behind issues that he feels connected to. And um, you see a lot of athletes doing that. So it's a very, very um, complicated space now because ultimately guys are not, guys are no, they're no longer disconnected. If you said, Hey, you got to pick up a newspaper and find out what's going on. Of course you got guys that aren't going to read, but then now you just scroll through your timeline and you're informed, you're getting information and it's causing these connected points to these communities that these guys live in. Um, and it affects them. And like you saw during the bubble, they come to a point and they say, Hey, tonight or at this moment, we can't get by it. And something needs to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's actually fascinating to me because what, what I'm hearing, and it's it's almost counterintuitive. It's like you you describe the situation where players are you know in the locker room on their phones, and it sounds almost like well, oh, people like they they're so isolated in their own uni- little universe that they're like not not even forming a kind of collectivity with their teammates. Wow, that sounds really sure. bleak. But <laughs> but you're saying something actually quite different, and if I'm hearing you correctly, which is that like. Well, they're actually connecting more broadly than on that team. And what to me seems really promising about that is like, I'm almost inferring that you're breaking down this sort of 
team-based logic of competition, i.e. your team is different than this other. Golden State is fundamentally different than San Antonio and like your rivals and you hate each other, right? The whole logic that sports wants to make us think through. But right. like it produces more of a labor-based mentality, right? Because if you're actually like at Golden State and you're texting with someone or you're like on social media with someone in San Antonio at halftime or whatever, you actually might see that individual as your colleague, right? They're not your rival. They're your call. They're on a different team, right? Because you're producing this commodity spectacle that is sport for everyone together, right? right? And you have to compete against each other to do that. But actually you're also on the same team in a different kind of sense. Right. Mm, And that to me, I see, like, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, like that does produce the framework for these forms of broader labor solidarity, like a strike. Right. Like the fact that you can mobilize people because you actually do feel like you're pulling in the same direction. And it also makes me feel that there's a bit more hope for that point I was trying to get at about, like, how can you build solidarity for college athletes? Because if the professional athletes do see themselves as workers more or increasingly, maybe that produces more of a possibility for them seeing those college athletes in in a sense as their as their colleagues, too, in this sort of way. Right. Right, right. Yeah, I mean that's that's a valid point. Um, but again, it's gotta it's gotta it's gotta get to that point. So what I was saying in terms of, of, of terms of the professional athlete, you have guys that understand more now than ever that they are connected to the world and that they are mm. the, the bubble that used to exist, right? That sort of used to separate the professional athlete from the rest of the world. And that was the bubble that I grew up in. You know, I was born in 1980. So it was like the Jordan era, right? No politics, yeah. no, um, you know, none of that political stuff. And then you sort of see this evolution of the athlete now that's saying, okay, um, I was, I was, I was, I was talking with someone the other day about this. Well, you, well, you have guys that are, again, a part of their hashtag. Like it's a part of their, their brand now. You know what I mean? Where when I came in the league, guys were, you know, I was, I was told, hey man, you got to be easy, saying certain things and talking certain ways. And as time has now worn on, you see players that awareness has come and that awareness has leaked out and. What some old school players, I mean, and, and, and if you follow sports, you've heard old school guys don't like the fact that guys aren't as competitive and they don't, you know, battle each other the way they used to battle in the olden days. And a lot of it is, again, they understand that they're all working for the same boss, mm-hmm. even though they're in, in different markets, working on playing on different teams. You know, they guys do have that understanding. And yeah. my time in the NBA, I saw the the educational part of it, um, you know, people talking and imploring players to be able to be prepared for, you know, for strikes and for lockouts and the, the importance of making sure that you're able to, to, when you make decisions, you make them as a group. Um, and, I, you know, again, you see the NBA now and players now, again, working in a way um, that's more connected than they have been in the past. And one of the reasons why they were able to get through 2016, like Ricky mentioned fairly smoothly was because of that, because the players understood, you know, had a, a, a short list of, of caveats that they felt needed to be adjusted. The owners didn't want to risk knowing that the players potentially were a little bit more organized this time around things worked themselves out. And that's the way that I think the awareness of the players um, has grown and, Again, I'm a little hopeful, um, the way you mentioned it, um, that this will seep down 
um, into the other ranks in terms of guys understanding that they now in a position um, where they can't really, you know, you can't be hurt by what happens in college. You can now go and, 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 and work in, on the behalf of the collegiate athlete who's coming through the same channels. And that's, again, like Ricky said, though, that's what we're hoping to do with what we're creating with the PCL. Yeah, absolutely. And and I definitely want to get to questions today about sort of where the PCL fits in the sort of broad landscape of college basketball. And and right before we do that, I think like we'd be remiss not to talk about everything that's happening like right now in college basketball. Um, and one of the things that really stood out for us was was this past week or last week, um, University of Pittsburgh basketball coach uh, Jeff Capel said, and I'm quoting here um, just for our listeners, one of the things that has come out about, uh, come out um, with all of this since everything happened in March when the season was canceled, I don't think anyone can say that these young men are amateurs. That's out the window. They're not. They absolutely aren't. And while Nathan, Johanna, and I have our a million thoughts about what Capel said, I'd love to get both of your takes on these comments and, and sort of where you see them fitting in the, in the grand scheme of, of the sort of amateurism um, sort of debate. So let's start with you, Ricky. What did you think and what did you make of these comments? Yeah, I mean, I know you and I talked a little bit about it offline. I, yeah. I start by saying talk is really easy and talk is really cheap. It's one thing for for the for uh, Coach Capel to say these sorts of things, but you know he was an assistant at Duke. He's now a multi million dollar coach at at Pitt, yeah. and you know he's certainly making off just fine right now uh, off of the back of unpaid labor, and it's it's super easy for him to say this. The thing I would I would add for just context is this isn't anything new. Like yeah. amateurism was always a con. It has been since it was initially thought of in Victorian England in the mid 19th century. And it has stayed that way up and until December 13th, 2020. You know, it's always been used as a tool to segregate people, whether due to class, whether due to race, whether due to sex or economic power in the context of, of college sports. That's always what it's been like. So, I mean, I'm glad he's had this realization now that that's what it is. But but what's next? Like, what's he actually going to do now? You know, has Pitt played again? I don't I don't. Frankly, I can't stand college sports anymore because of of <laughs> the work that I've done in the PCL. I don't even know has Pitt played another game like since he made these comments. Uh, I like I'm genuinely asking because I don't know. But <laughs> to be to be quite honest, like I, I I'm not sure if anyone here on this call actually watches college sports right now. Uh, so okay, well, so you know, like, are we going to start seeing him pack it in? Like, is Pitt done for the year? Yeah. No, you know, because if we got a big win over Northwestern on Wednesday. <laughs> well, yeah. So there you go. I mean, that, and that's my that's where I get back to is it's really easy for him to get in front of a mic and say this. It's a whole nother thing for him to actually follow through and do something about it, which that's what goes back to, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to keep bringing it back to why we started the PCL is that mm -hmm. the leadership within college sports has no moral compass, either that or they do. And it's pointing due south. Um, and 
that can't be fixed. No rule change fixes that. Mm-hmm. So we can sit here and come up with any sort of reformation to college sports we possibly want. But as long as the individuals that are leading these institutions and leading the NCAA are still leading those institutions in the NCAA, they're just going to work within the bounds of the new rules to screw over the athletes. Yeah. So, so David, so, yeah. so go ahead. I, I was going to, I was going to probe the same question to David. What, what were, what were your thoughts when you first heard that? Well, the first time I heard it was from you. Um, <laughs> just being, I'm just being honest. Um, you know, just, just, just to reiterate what Ricky said. Like, right, they're gonna say, um, uh, you know, what they want to say. They're gonna say what they, I, you know. I honestly think I don't know what what their record is and how they're playing. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, are they winning games? Um, is, is, is his loss record being affected? Um, that's, that would be my question in this with these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because again, um, like Ricky said, they're not going to shut it down. Um, it's just words to sort of grab. And again, this is not, you know, directed at him. This is more so the, uh, the system, right? The, the, the institution that exists. Mm-hmm. We know that these folks have had opportunity after opportunity to make, you know, make right and do right by players. And they've, they've chosen not to do so. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's intellectually dishonest, you know, for someone to, 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 to suggest that, you know, we would be, we would be wrong for questioning whether or not these folks were, were genuine in their assertions that, Hey, you know, whether it's the safety of the players, whether they believe players are no longer amateurs, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to, make good on it or are you just going to say it? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I really, I appreciate that both of you are really um, picking apart sort of the difference between a statement versus actual action. Right. And, and I think, I think a lot of people do see, I think people do see this as major, but I think you're right in that he and, and coach K and other people have a real vested interest, right. And in like ensuring that, that, that the season continues so that they can, you know, keep their, keep their jobs and, and sort of do all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I guess it is not at all surprising that the mainstream sports media really are not talking about this hardly at all, because of course they also have a vested role in this. Um, and so what do you both make of the media complicity and both propping up and also reinforcing the system of harm and exploitation that as Ricky, as you explained it very well, these things that are literally the foundation of NCAA. Yeah, I mean, I'll start and I'm fine with calling out exactly what happened. But this reminds me of a conversation we had. So, I mean, obviously, the PCL, we talk with media companies all the time. You know, that's a critical part of monetizing any professional sports or college sports property is distribution and production. So uh, obviously, we're we're in frequent contact with, with these groups and have talked with them at length over the years. and. I think back to one, I don't remember the executive's name, so I'm not going to get that granular, but they were at CBS and we got into an argument that CBS and Duke collectively created Zion Williamson. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was just total bullshit. And I pointed that out to them. And to think that 
is just it shows either number one just such an ignorance to what's really going on or it just shows this uh going back to david's comment you know an intellectual dishonesty to show to make their point that that what they're doing is good for athletes because they genuinely believe that or either that or they're they're just saying it so that they can protect their revenues but they believe that they are providing a platform that without that platform these athletes will not ascend to the next level um but to go to Mm -hmm. to joanna to your point you know the, the media companies are just as resistant to what we're doing as the NCAA, if not more, because, mm-hmm. you know, a successful competitive property, the NCAA that strikes a deal with an OTT platform or with a cable outlet that doesn't currently have a deal and isn't, you know, in up to their knees in the billions of dollars with the NCAA and these conferences, you know, they could swoop in and and totally take out the competition <laughs> uh, yeah. for for pennies on the dollar. You know, comparative. So, uh, comparatively speaking, to to what they'd have to pay in a rights fee for a conference deal, and so they are extremely fearful of our as almost as fearful of our success. And I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out which ones are most concerned. So, it, I guess getting back to the to the your question itself, am I surprised that they're not talking about this? Of course not. Like it would, it would, it would hurt the business if they're talking about it. So, but that said, I would also say it really isn't news. People are constantly looking for a reason to say college sports is finally about to change and they've been wrong for over a century now. So I think they're going to continue to be wrong. Coach Kappel's comment is not the, uh, you know, uh, this isn't a watershed moment where from here we are now going to have drastic change and everybody's going to wake up tomorrow and college sports will be fair. Like this really isn't news. So uh, I guess I could see it both ways, but yeah, they're, they're protecting the business model. (laughs) Yeah. But, but like to, to push or to, to get a little bit more granular in that kind of critique, we did see ESPN, CBS, and the big networks pick up on a watered-down version of what the Pittsburgh coach was saying when Coach K came out and said like a similar story, but didn't say amateurism is a con. Like, didn't say the they're not amateurs. He basically said like, "Oh, we're pushing them too much. Like, they they aren't going to be able to go home for Christmas, and we should be thinking about mental health." And ESPN picked that up. And ESPN ran with that. And like, so let me just put that down and ask for your take on the sort of overplay of, of coach K's watered down comments that were in like very much connected to, to cables. I mean, they ran with black lives matter too. When coach K (laughs) said that over the summer and coach K's entire career is built off of unpaid, largely black labor. Like coach K is a safe space. They can promote what he's saying and know that there won't be momentum for change after his comments, but everybody can go home, go go to bed feeling better about themselves. Coach and K said it. An <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll shut up and let David talk more about that too, because I know he's he's yeah. always thoughtful no, no. about those. That's my I'm reaction. At the <laughs> no, that was that was that was it. I mean, that was. I got nothing to say. That's the way. I mean, that Ricky said it all. You know, it's it's yeah. they know exactly what they're doing and know exactly who to promote because they know that beyond their words, there's nothing. Yeah. And yeah, that was beautiful, Ricky. I might need that one. I might need that. 
You're, now, you're free one to use of the other PCO oh. property. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing you two are partners um, in, that, in that venture. But uh, one of the the things that we like tragically saw over the weekend, and I, and I want to ask your take on the the Keontae Johnson um, mm. situation and, and like just in general, like our thoughts, everyone on this podcast, like thinking about Keontae and his family, um, and, and just can't even imagine the sort of horrific uh, feelings that there and emotions that, that, that people are going through around that situation. But I would like to get your take not on like the, the sort of tragic and, and, and violent images that we kind of saw on television, but about the relationship um, of uh, Keontae, the incident that happened um, in relation to labor and to COVID-19 in general. Because we do know that Keontae had COVID in the summer. Um, and we also know that a sizable and a significant number of college athletes are showing signs of long-term um, bodily trauma like myocarditis. I'm not suggesting that this was inherently and necessarily connected to COVID, to uh, Keontae having COVID, but it could have. So I think that there's there's a question here or a conversation to have um, about what transpired over the weekend and whether or not the NCAA should be doing more to protect their laborers and i think like perhaps as a lawyer in the room like should ncaa or our ncaa and member institutions like are they actually kind of liable to these situations uh, if they come up now and in the future i can answer the last part really easily and then i'll let david talk more about the 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 situation with Keontae a bit more um on the legal side, no, they have no liability. That's been established. Mm. The Kent Waldrop yeah. case in particular, yeah. the term student athlete, you know, people think about it and just like parrot it without even thinking about its meaning. You know, student athlete means that you're not an employee. So therefore you're not qualified for any of the employee benefits such as workers' compensation and medical insurance and, you know, all those things, the health plans that you get as an employee. You don't get any of those as a college athlete. And that was, you know, carefully concocted by the NCAA starting in the 1950s. And now we've got, you know, 60 plus years worth of legal precedent now that confirms that. Uh, where I would point the finger more so than the NCAA is the institutions. You know, people, I think, let the institutions skate by a little bit sometimes on this. I'm not saying they have legal liability because they've also been able to, under the, the auspices of the definition of student athlete, escape any legal liability. But the institutions are the ones actually on the ground setting the policies and the procedures. They are the ones that are hands-on setting exactly what their medical trainers are doing, exactly what they're making available to their athletes, and all of those things. And the institutions are what make up the NCA. The NCA does what the institutions want them to want it to do. Like, so mm -hmm. I think sometimes we get into this like circular discussion where people mm -hmm. allow the institutions to escape the blame in this context because we think of the NCA as this all-powerful being that will punish anybody that steps out of line. But in reality, the NCAA and Mark Emmert are doing what they're directed to do by the institutions. It's like what Roger Goodell in the NFL, like he's the, he's the bulletproof armor 
around the the NFL teams and their owners. Same thing for yeah. Mark Emmert with the institutions. You know, he takes all the bullets for them so that they don't have to. Yeah, but that's so with it. that, I'll shut up and let you. And I want to hear David. I definitely, we're coming back to David for sure. But I, I want to follow up back on this legal point for a second because, um, you know, I totally agree with you. By centering our focus here, like for instance, just as a case study, um, and we don't know the content, obviously we don't know the details, et cetera, but like we're basically, we're talking about the University of Florida here. It's not the NCA, it's the University of Florida and with the University of Florida. And by the way, the NCA has done a really nifty job of taking zero responsibility for health protocols, right? So they're putting that all mm -hmm. back on the universities anyway, which means that really it is the University of Florida's responsibility, right? For instance, if he got COVID because they were irresponsible, that's on the University of Florida. Um, if, you know what I mean? Like if he was not cared for in that game appropriately, if there were signs, that's on the University of Florida as well. Now, I yeah. mean, this again, where's where I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is someone who works at an American university that is very cognizant of um, the law and liability issues. These universities are very concerned about what happens to students on their campuses, right? That's forget about student athletes or athletes or whatever you want to call. It. I mean, they're worried about their responsibility when student, anything happens to students on their campus, they're absolutely worried that they're going to get sued by parents for anything. If, if a kid gets hurt on a tennis court on a campus, they're worried about that. So I don't really understand how, if they play their little student-athlete game, I'm not quite sure how they avoid being responsible for having their students get hurt on their campus or, or you know what I mean, in their campus environment. Well, uh, now I'm not, I don't want it to sound like I'm making this argument. But I'm just now going to say what they would say. <laughs> Those, That's what I want to hear. You know, That's no, what I want to hear you say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they would say is like no athlete, no person has the right to be a college athlete. You don't have to be there. You can walk away. You know, it's non-compulsory, even though we all know it, it is compulsory in a lot of ways, because mm -hmm. if you opt out, you're going to lose your scholarship. Many of these athletes can't afford to pay their own way on these campuses and they're out. But like, as far as the law is concerned, like you don't, <laughs> last time I checked, there's no 29th amendment or whatever that says, you know, you have the right to be a college athlete. So, you know, th that's where there's significant legal defenses. Like, eh, and I don't want to, so in a similar, similar situation to this, like if an athlete who's had COVID decides to come back, like you have access to all of the same information as a university has right now because of the internet. You know, we've seen the exact same legal arguments be carried out in the context of concussions and how the NCA and institutions have been able to totally yes. avoid yes. any sort of liability as it relates to CTE concussions, you know, post-traumatic concussion syndrome, all of those things. Um, you know, they, you, you have the ability to go and inform yourself now. And because you have that ability, there is a, a, a risen, the level of assumption of risk is so much higher than like, even if we were talking about when David, like when David was at Xavier in 2003, if this had happened, it would be a different scenario. The internet wasn't quite what it was. He wouldn't have access to the same amount of information. Like all of these athletes have access to this information. Plus no one knows what the long-term impacts are other than they're probably not good. So mm -hmm that's where it begin it gets really tricky for any athlete to build a legal case against an institution even if they have what could ultimately be life threatening or god forbid you know 
a postmortem case where, you know, a family's bringing a suit because an athlete died. Mm. Yeah, it just it boggles my mind because, like, for instance, when the Big Ten came back for football, their big press release, right, like their ne- flashing neon lights was, we know we can keep these players safe. I mean, they were screaming yeah. that they could keep players safe in public. To me, I can't understand how they can avoid liability there. Like, they've literally, they screamed that they could keep players safe, and then they just, like, waved a wand and infected everyone with COVID immediately right which is not a surprise but like it completely belied the crap they were spewing and to me like that has but yes go on but but and i go back to my i i know i had many conversations in particular with bomani jones over the summer i know he was working on a few different pieces around this topic and whenever we talked about the big 10 both of us honed in on maryland we were like, do you trust yes. Maryland? Yes. <laughs> they literally killed a player. Do you trust Maryland? Yeah. Because, but everyone has that, you know, everyone knows that. Everyone knows what DJ Durkin did. Everybody knows that, you know, the Jordan McNair situation. You know, everybody knows that <laughs> clearly Maryland doesn't have the same heightened policies and procedures that Ohio State might have had, though maybe even Ohio State didn't have because Ryan Day got it. Um, but that said, um, we all knew it. Like Bamani and I from day one were like, do you trust Maryland? We also talked about Wisconsin. Like, do you trust Wisconsin? Do you coach, mm-hmm. do you trust Coach Christ up there to make sure everything's good to go? Like, and that was months before the Big Ten restarted. So like the fact that we could pinpoint exactly where the Big Ten would go the most wrong, like that shows that again, there's this assumption of risk that we know what's gonna happen. Or we can, you know, within a, a certain degree of certainty, predict where things are going to go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess kind of one thing that I've been thinking about, and, and maybe this is just, I don't know, I, I haven't sort of figured this out in my head, but so going back to Nathan, your question about sort of like suing and the legalities of this stuff is that I feel like at the same time that we're, you know, thinking about like, why can't athletes, you know, do this, you know, don't they have grounds, this and that is that on the, on the other hand, within like the neoliberal higher ed atmosphere, it's like being shoved down our throats that like the customer is always right. And that like, we need to constantly like cater our own teaching and everything we do to like pleasing students. And like, obviously there's like, there is something to be said for accommodating the student experience and stuff like that. But then we are getting, you know, lots of pressure to like, not teach a certain way, you know, not say things that might be kind of controversial in the classroom, et cetera, et cetera. But then of course, it just sort of shows that once again, that these like athletic laborers are in a totally different class, right? That they are not considered to be the people that we need to be pleasing, if that makes any sense, at least when it comes to these sorts of circumstances that we as universities can kind of do whatever they want with these athletes and that universities and colleges will just be able to walk away, that it doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the students, you know, I, I get it. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've been teaching a class. Uh, I've been an adjunct this semester. I've seen uh, a school that actually relatively successfully was on campus all semester. Um, and, you know, so I, I lived through some of what they tried to do. And there was definitely a heightened focus on making sure the student experience was as similar as you could make it, which, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep sounding really cynical on this interview, but like schools are businesses at the end of the day, 
you know, if they don't make money, their doors close just like any other business. And, you know, for the most part, you know, most of those students are paying their way to be there. So um, then on the flip side, the argument would be like, well, we're, we are in some way, shape or form subsidizing the athlete experience. So, you know, hey, we're, we're letting them be here because we chose to let them be here. So like, I kind of, I don't agree with it, but I get why the, 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 the deferring thought process is between the two um, even, and, and, you know, going back to, I, I can't remember if it was Derek or Nathan that made this point earlier, just the mentality that's been created within sports of next person up, you know, like if you're dealing with any issues, you know, you got to toughen it out or else we've got 10 more people right behind you ready to take your spot. Anybody would love a quote unquote free education to be yeah. here. So like th- there's just a different dynamic that exists between the athlete in the institution and then just your non-athlete student and the institution. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sort of as you were talking, I didn't mean to, uh, to listeners, I'm, I'm not trying to imply that we should not have use like inclusive and accommodating pedagogy. That's very, that's something that's very, very near and dear to my heart. But absolutely. I think that, yeah, the point is well made that they're just sort of considered to be two completely different groups of people. Um, and, and sort of as part of this whole conversation, we're sort of leading to this question that, that you all have both teased a little bit so far. And we're sort of wondering, uh, where does the PCL fit into the grand scheme of college athletics in the pandemic? In, in other words, as founders of the PCL, um, how maybe would you have approached the pandemic differently from the NCAA? Um, and also sort of what would you tell potential recruits in the league to entice them to choose you all in the PCL over the NCAA? Well, I think the like bold print flashing lights rule that I can tell you exists within our team, but would have absolutely existed if we had tried to pull off something during the, the year 2020 is believe scientists and believe science. <laughs> Uh, that that would have been first and foremost, um, yeah. which I know that there were some institutions and some coaches that questioned that um, in eloquent and not so eloquent ways throughout the mm-hmm. the, the year. Um, but first and foremost, beyond that, get, getting past that point, you have to recognize a college athlete as a full fledged citizen, and this mm-hmm. is where my criticisms of everybody's proposed legislation that's come out so far is that nothing does that. Everyone is still recognizing it in the context of here are the rights we're going to permit you to have. And here are the rights we're not going to permit you to have, as opposed to you're 18, you have all the rights that every other 18 year old American citizen has. And that's, you know, that's where the PCL comes from. It is you have all of these rights. You have, there are no restrictions on your name, image, and likeness. You know, you are a, an employee in the context of the PCL because there is more than one of you. You can go start a union or a players association, whichever one you prefer. You can have rep- representation with you at every step of the way of the legal variety, of the agent variety, of the marketing variety, of the accountant and tax variety. You can have all of that. <laughs> So that, you know, you know, and are well informed when you're making decisions. Um, so I'll hit pause there. I'll let David take the baton. But that, that's like sort of the, the core of everything we do. Yeah. yeah. 
And, you know, just to sort of piggyback Ricky, it's, it's player-centered. Right. So the player is an equitable, equitable partner, um, has an equitable stake um, in the enterprise. And, you know, we we mentioned it earlier um, and I don't know if Ricky answered the question um, whether or not Northwestern did attempt to to unionize. But the only place that the NCAA hasn't been challenged has been in the market. And, mm-hmm. you know, that position for us, um, you know, again, putting all of the things that, again, you see all the legal cases and things that are that have gone on in the NCAA, putting all of the things that we know exist under the table on above, above the table. Um, and in that sense, that's the way that we would, you know, would operate um, during this, this pandemic, particularly early on when there was mm-hmm. a lot of uncertainty, you know, players were just told to go home. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, they were sort of smuggled back onto to campuses um, and they're you know, quarantined, not quarantined. There were a lot of things going on behind the scenes. But, you know, ultimately for us, it's always about centering the player. Um, and, you know, that is anything that we do, um, you know, the player and their concerns, you know, their health, mental uh, and physical health um, comes first and foremost. So so if I could ask you maybe to to just. Uh, imagine for a moment that PCL was operating in March of this year when like Rudy Gobert tested positive and the whole world kind of shut down. What would the PCL have done to protect, um, protect the workers? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's, I laugh because David and I were literally in a car together for six hours that day. <laughs> as the news was unfolding and every yeah. can- every tournament was getting canceled. So first thing I would have done is exactly what we did, which is get away from each other, go home and isolate. Um, and then from there, you know, again, the, the athletes in the PCL are employees and have the right to unionize. So we would have sat down or assume ignoring the legal complexities of whether they unionize or form an association, whichever they did, we would have sat down with a, core executive committee of the players and with the leader leadership of, again, whether it's a union or an association, and we would have laid out exactly what the return to play policies and procedures were. We would have done our project restart. We would have done our uh, bubble, you know, our wobble, you know, whatever other nicknames everybody else came up for them. You know, we would have done all of those things. We would have, and we would have, you know, the only part where it would have been a little tough and at least somewhat antithetical to what we stand for going back to David's player centric player centric point is we would have had to have ruled with an iron fist because mm-hmm. you know you're only going back to my my point about Wisconsin and and Maryland everybody's only as safe as the person that takes it the least serious so yeah everybody would have had to take it. It would have had to have been like the NBA bubble. Like you have your, your snitch hotline, you know, you have all those things. So, because mm-hmm. if people aren't, t- if, if people aren't respecting the rules, they're not respecting each other and they're not respecting the safety of each other. And that would have been the atmosphere that we would have created. You know, again, you're an employee in the PCL. So with that comes certain responsibilities and accountabilities. And we would have created an atmosphere that we would have felt was safe for everybody. And if we couldn't have created a safe environment, then we wouldn't have been playing games. So, um, you know, that I know it's all hypothetical, but that, I mean, that's what we would have done. Anything you want to add, David? I mean, Ricky is nailing these things tonight. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, I would, you know, I would just say um, again, you know, the first thing we would, you know, like Ricky said, we would make sure that, you know, we followed protocol in accordance with, you know, what was being laid out. And then beyond that, we would just look at the safety of the players. Um, you know, one thing we weren't, and, you know, we talked about this, you know, we weren't concerned or wouldn't be concerned with playing, you know, it would be, mm -hmm. is everyone home? Is everyone safe? Is everyone, you know, being informed, um, you know, being connected to current NBA players. I know how involved and how connected, um, the teams were, um, yeah. you know, NBA may have gone dark for a little while, um, but the teams were communicating with the players, the trainers were updating the players and, you know, you know, that's sort of the way I think you handle, um, something unexpected, like a, you know, like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so last time we talked with you, Ricky, we kind of, the last question was kind of like a timeline on, on the PCL and what's, what's happening. What can we can expect over the next little while? Has any of that changed or, or can, can either of you kind of walk us through the, the, the actual the sort of timeline for rollout of the league itself like when can we kind of expect games and stuff i'm gonna be honest i don't remember what my answer was last time <laughs> but well, uh, uh, it's not like there hasn't been a, a global pandemic in like the meantime like so yeah i hardly remember what i told people last week let alone <laughs> how i think it was four months ago now or something like that time flies but um so next this coming week uh, which mm -hmm. I'm happy to go ahead and say the team name now. So we're going to be, as I said, rolling out our Charlotte brand, which is going to be known as the Carolina flight. Uh, again, mm -hmm. that, that was uh, the brand is pretty awesome. Uh, obviously mm -hmm. we don't have any sort of visual element here, but everybody will be able to check that out this week. Um, coming straight from David West brain and onto the paper. So uh, <laughs> that, that that's next. Uh, we're going to be announcing the coaching staff for the DC Stealth. Uh, we are bringing back our amateurism as a con brand. Uh, that's that's nice. going to be here in the near future. And I'm really we we just signed off on the design, so I'm really excited to roll that out here soon too. Uh, but in terms of operations, you know, we're still uh, continuing down the path on the fundraising side. Uh, we're still hoping that by this coming summer that we will have successfully fundraised for two full seasons at a minimum, uh, which is Great. that part has changed a little bit. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it from the last time we spoke to now, um, you know, we are definitively going to be in one location, which that part was the same, but mm -hmm. um, we are also going to, we, we've taken our lessons from the NBA. We've taken our lessons from the WNBA and the NWSL and the MLS and, you know, we've we've got some some tweaks that we've put into the model in terms of the actual seasonal format. The games are going to start later in the summer than we originally anticipated because the idea of keeping 18, well, really 17 to 23 year olds locked down for four months mm -hmm. is not a social experiment that I wanted to be at the forefront of. And so um, we have reformatted the season to look a bit different, but we still think it'll be very compelling. Uh, still going to be eight teams, so it'll just start later in the year. So the season will, for simplicity's sake, be, be about cut in half uh, so that we're only looking at an eight to 10 week period together. Um, and as a result of that, that's also cut down some of our, our overhead and expenses that we anticipated having to raise for, uh, which that part's nice. Um, and then plus the NBA season schedule has shifted, uh, hopefully 
following this coming 2021, 2020, 2021 NBA season, which I think starts next week now. Um, hopefully once we get on the other side of that one, the NBA will be back to a normal schedule. But now we've also got the Olympics next summer, or at least as of yeah. this moment we do. Um, so those are all things we've had to account for in trying to figure out how we can lay out our schedule that we thought we had avoided. Like that was part of why we didn't make as significant of a push to launch in 2020 was to avoid the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And then the Olympics followed us, uh, obviously for <laughs> very re reasonable reasons. Um, but so that's just reality. something we're going to have to deal with now. But, um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise I can't think of anything that's other than the format of the season that's drastically changed in terms of timeline and, and execution that we're, we're working on right now. Great. Well, Ricky, David, thank you for spending an hour and 15 minutes with us on the Sunday evening. Um, best of luck with both of you and the PCL keep us, um, in the loop. And obviously we Oh, we're probably at least a couple of us are going to buy these amateurism is a con um, shirts or, or brand. I imagine it would be something that this show would be uh, would back quite um, quite heartily. So here's um, the thank hint. you. The hint yeah. I will give you there is that when the artist sent us the design that we signed off on, his his only comment was, "Are you sure you want to be this aggressive?" <laughs> So and the answer yes it's a, always a yes in that. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Um and and best of luck with everything. Yeah, thank you guys for having us. Thank you. Appreciate the time, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Bye.